On today's episode of May the Record Reflect. I feel like this is an attorney hazing ritual that if you are the youngest and least experienced attorney in the room, somebody says to you at some point in your career, the usual stipulations, and you feel like you can't ask what that means. And so you say yes, because everybody else is saying yes. And then the next thing you know, nobody has ever defined it in your entire career. And you're the one saying the usual stipulations and nobody in the room has any idea what that actually means. I don't think that it's helpful to agree to the usual stipulations the same way I don't think it's helpful to walk into a corner deli and ask for the usual sandwich. You might not like what you get, and who knows what's usual. That was Veronica Finkelstein, and this is May the Record Reflect. And welcome to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and in today's episode, I am excited to introduce you to Veronica Finkelstein. Veronica is an assistant United States attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice in Philadelphia, a member of the inaugural faculty at Wilmington University School of Law in Delaware, and adjunct faculty at Drexel University and Emory University Schools of Law. At the Department of Justice, Veronica has tried cases involving torts, employment law, and medical malpractice, as well as investigated and prosecuted affirmative fraud claims, including KETAM actions. She is the program director for NIDA's Deposition Skills course held each winter in Philadelphia. We are so fortunate to have caught up with her to talk about depositions today. The title of this episode is Asked and Answered. But as you're about to find out, we could just as easily have called it an embarrassment of riches, because that's exactly what Veronica Finkelstein is serving up. Here's our interview. A few months ago, you took part in a NIDA webcast titled Managing Obstructive Opposing Counsel During Depositions, along with Judge Christine Weems and Judge Matthew McCoy, who are two members of state judiciaries who, like you, serve as NIDA faculty. And as listeners who have ever tuned into one of our webcasts know, we always hold open the last 10 minutes or so for a Q&A. And what happened during that webcast was we received far more cues than we had time to A. And so I wanted to have you onto the podcast, Veronica, and thought, well, this is our moment to have you come back to Studio 71 and answer all those questions here on the podcast. So welcome, Veronica. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited to answer these questions. I think depositions cause a lot of anxiety, both for experienced and new litigators, and I hope I can reduce the stress a little bit with some tips. Yeah, so the greatest number of questions that came in from viewers wanted advice about dealing with specific scenarios that involve obstructive or obstreperous counsel. And so we'll get to those, but the first two questions are kind of interesting because they relate to both a difficult uh, counsel and witness. And so the first question is, from one of the viewers, is, do you have any suggestions on how to deal with lawyers who have no interest in controlling their extremely obstructionist client in a deposition? Must we or should we direct anything to opposing counsel or should we just deal with their obstructionist client as if the opposing counsel is not even there? That's a great question, and I think my answer is a little bit different depending on what the nature of the obstructionist witness's conduct is. If we have a deponent who is clearly prepped 
to be obstructionist and it's clear that this conduct is coming from the attorney as well. For example, the witness who has been instructed to answer questions so incredibly narrowly that no human being would actually interpret the questions that way. Then I think there's probably little value in trying to involve opposing counsel and in some ways that just feeds opposing counsel's ego that they have gotten what they wanted out of prepping the witness that way. On the other hand, if it's a witness who is clammed up, who seems confused, um, who's sort of uh, rambling and just giving long-winded narrative answers that are non-responsive, but doesn't seem to be prepped to do that, sometimes getting opposing counsel involved in the efforts to get the deposition back on track can be really helpful. I also think it depends what your relationship is like with opposing counsel. If you are very much at odds with opposing counsel, you're unlikely to get much cooperation and buy-in. If you have a good relationship with opposing counsel and you have a witness who's driving the train right off the tracks, you might get more buy-in in getting opposing counsel to help. So I think it depends a little bit. My big picture takeaway, though, is the way to deal with obstruction from the deponent is to have really, really good detailed instructions and not just reading those instructions at the deponent as a block of text, but having an actual back and forth questioning with the deponent on each of those instructions to get the deponent to tell you in the deponent's own words that they're going to cooperate with the instruction and that they understand the instruction. And the moment that I get some pushback from the deponent, I take the deponent right back to that instruction. So if I gave an instruction to the deponent at the beginning of the deposition and I said, I need your most complete answers, and now as I'm questioning on the substance, the deponent is clamming up and giving one word answers or only giving me part of the substance of the answer when I know there's more, I will interrupt the substantive questioning and go back to that instruction. I will give the instruction again, remind the deponent that they bought into and agreed to follow the instruction, have the deponent repeat the instruction back to me in the deponent's own words, and then go back to that line of questioning. I think most attorneys who prep their witnesses not to be cooperative do not particularly give their deponents good instructions on how to actually answer questions. And if you can get the deponent to buy in onto your instructions, you've already gotten half of the way there in getting some better buy-in on answering the questions. But I think the real answer is you have to know who's sitting at the table with you. Is this somebody who is going to view the fact that you ask for their help as a win and try to be obstructionist themselves? Or is this someone who just has a witness who's hard to prep and hard to control? Or, or maybe opposing counsel who's not being obstructionist at all. It's all coming from the witness, in which case getting a little bit of buy-in from the attorney even if the attorney is opposing counsel, might actually be kind of helpful. So I think it really depends and you have to know who you're dealing with and you have to play it by ear a bit based on what the deponent is actually doing. Okay, that's really fantastic and a really great thorough answer. The next question is, what do you do when the witness, also known as the party in the deposition, does not bring the records that have been subpoenaed in advance to the deposition? The viewer here commented that while you can put it on the record, opposing counsel might say, well, we'll get the records to you, blah, blah, blah. And it ends up hindering the deposition. And all you can do is not go forward with it, which the viewer says costs my client time and money. Veronica, what are your thoughts on that? Isn't that frustrating? You've done everything you can do to be prepared and something that is out of your control causes you to be not as prepared for the deposition as you might like to be. I understand where this question is coming from. That's a very frustrating position to be in. I have some suggestions that might help with this. One thing that you can do is you can reach out in advance. I would suggest about a week before the deposition and just remind counsel that these records have been requested and that you're expecting the records to be produced at the deposition and that you're reserving the right to call the deponent back for a second deposition on the subject matter of the records if the deponent does not bring those records to the deposition. So 
obstructionist counsel, their end goal here is to have you not question well on the records and to get that deponent in and out in a single deposition session, not having to answer difficult questions about the documents. That whole plan goes out the window if by not bringing the records to the deposition, what they end up doing is buying a second deposition session with this same witness where you've had the benefit of questioning once and thinking about the answers. And now you get to come back a second time and depose that same deponent with the benefit of knowing the answers and having some prep time to look at the records. So in that letter or email or contact that I would send out in advance, and I would do it in writing, in case this needs to be the subject of motion practice, I would make it clear that if the deponent does not bring the records to the deposition or does not produce them in advance as you've requested, that you reserve the right to go forward with the deposition on all of the relevant topics other than the documents and to schedule a follow-up deposition where you will use the remainder of the time to question on the documents. I think that is the last thing that obstreperous opposing counsel will be looking for. It is the last thing that a deponent wants to do, and it gives you the added advantage of circling back on any topics that you felt like you didn't cover fully in the first deposition. So that's my big picture suggestion is be a little bit proactive about this, set the expectation in advance, send that reminder, and then my follow-up suggestion is, you know, be willing to litigate this if you have to litigate it. Um, There's other ways to get information from a deponent. For example, following a live question and answer deposition session, at least in federal court, you can also potentially serve a deposition in the form of written questions. That might be a way to follow up. You can always send requests for admission after a deposition session. So don't be afraid to use other tools. But if you have served a deposition notice, you've requested records, you're entitled to those records under the rules, you've sent a reminder for them in advance, and they're not produced at the deposition or they're not produced before the deposition, that might be a situation where you have to be willing to engage in motion practice. And the consequences for you are very small. If you lose the motion, well, you don't get to ask additional questions. But if you win the motion, you get a real benefit in that second deposition session. And you set an expectation for opposing counsel that you're not going to play fast and loose with the rules. The next question is, how do you deal with counsel repeatedly asking the same question over and over, or very similar questions that are just used to confuse the witness? One suggestion that I have is a very straightforward one. Make an objection that the question has been asked and answered if you feel that that is true. So don't be afraid to utilize objections as they are intended to be utilized to preserve the record. If those questions and answers are later sought to be admitted by opposing counsel, perhaps attached to a motion, or if the witness becomes unavailable and the transcript is read into the record at trial, at that point you can litigate the asked and answered objections. And odds are pretty good that if we're at trial, the judge is not going to look kindly on opposing counsel asking the same question in slightly different words 12 times in a row. So that might be an objection that you actually win. So preserve it on the record. In addition, you want to think about prepping your witness for exactly this situation. You want your witness to not get frustrated, but also to not be afraid to give the same answer. If the answer to the question is the light was red, it doesn't matter how many times that question is asked. The witness should simply say the light is red calmly and unapologetically. So you want to prepare your witness to understand that this can happen and that the mere fact that they're getting what feels like the same question over and over again does not mean that they've done something wrong and they should shift or change their answers. In some ways, this can really backfire because if your witness is well prepared, instead of opposing counsel being able to catch your witness in an inconsistency, instead there will be a transcript where your witness has been incredibly consistent and you can use that to your advantage in a motion or at trial, pointing out that your witness was asked what color the light was at the time of the accident a dozen times and said the word red every single time in response. So I wouldn't necessarily be afraid of this happening if you've prepared your witness well and practiced it with your witness. It can actually end up being an advantage. And then my final suggestion is 
don't be afraid to go back and do a little bit of questioning on the record yourself if your witness ends up giving inconsistent answers. So don't be afraid to go back when opposing counsel has done all of the questioning and just take your witness back to that topic and say, you know, opposing counsel asked you several times about the color of the light. I know that it's been a long deposition and you've answered many questions. I just want to make sure the record is clear what color was the light at the time of the accident and get your witness to give that clear, discreet answer on the record. And now you've got some pushback if opposing counsel tries to make hay out of any part of the record where there was an inconsistency, because you at the very end of all of that inconsistencies have cleared up the record. This this happens fairly frequently. And so put this in your toolkit as one of the things that you're going to think about when you're preparing for a deposition and preparing witnesses and preparing your own materials for what objections you might need to make and what follow-up questioning you might need to do. Uh, That is a wonderful answer. And the next question that came in, I wonder how much overlap there is with uh, the answer. But I'll go ahead and ask it and you can go ahead and answer it. The question is, how do you deal with properly lodged objections, which are disruptive in their repeated nature, but are not necessarily inappropriate? That's a tough one because there's some concession here that the objection is actually proper. So my first thought in response is, if this is not a topic you should be questioning on, consider whether or not you really need to explore it during the deposition. If you do need to explore it during the deposition, think about some more creative ways to get to the topic that don't necessarily telecast where you're going. So if you really need to question the witness about something that borders on work product, you know, what the witness was doing in terms of an investigation of the accident right before retaining the attorney, and you know that if you come at this in a straightforward way, asking about the investigation right before the attorney was retained, you're going to get some work product objections. Think about trying to work over to this topic non-chronologically, in a slightly different way, asking somebody to tell you what they did for their entire day, rather than honing right in on the actual investigation. There's some slightly more creative ways to get at the subject that maybe don't scream to opposing counsel, hey, I'm asking about something that might be kind of borderline, you might want to object here. The other thing I will say is, if there is a sincere and legitimate issue as to whether or not this topic is appropriate, it is probably worth having a discussion with counsel on the record about the propriety of the questioning if you feel it's important, because that's the kind of issue that's likely to get litigated. A lot of these one-off obstructionist things that happen in the moment somebody being a jerk to you, uh, somebody talking over a witness, a judge is very unlikely to ultimately get involved in that. But if there is a genuine substantive question as to whether or not you're entitled to ask about that topic, that is worth exploring to understand what the actual objection is and so that both parties understand their position. So this is one place where once I start on the topic, if I'm getting a series of disruptive objections, I might say, to the deponent, you know, we need to take a break. I want to have a discussion with your counsel on the record. Could I please ask the deponent to leave the room and then have a bit of a back and forth with opposing counsel so that you can understand? Are there areas where counsel agrees you can question that you can work around? Is there a true clash between what you think is relevant and discoverable and what opposing counsel thinks is relevant and discoverable? This just might be an issue that has to be litigated. But rather than let it keep going and interrupt the flow of the questioning, if there is a legitimate legal issue to be discussed, I think that it makes sense to send the deponent out of the room and have that discussion on the record. And this might be one of these instances where you have to escalate it to involving the judge if it is a serious enough um, concern and a topic that you really feel is important that you need to question this witness about. The next questions were in response to the suggestion that you track the amount of time that you end up spending on opposing counsel's objections when their conduct is so over the top that they are actually in the way of you progressing the deposition. So the the first question is, how do we track the amount of time the problem attorney is taking up with abusive conduct to establish the need to recapture, for example, 
30% of the deposition time. I have two suggestions here, and these are just based on the relationships that I have with court reporters and how I've had court reporters handle this. I think if you reached out to the court reporter that you use, you might find that there are other suggestions and other ways to handle this. The first is a really quick and dirty way of doing this when you didn't anticipate it in advance, but you're part of the way through the deposition and you're thinking to yourself, um, I've wasted half of my time dealing with these objections that aren't really valid. And that is to do a quick and dirty count of the amount of lines on a page that are spent with objections and objection battles as compared to lines on pages of the transcript that are spent on asking questions and substantive responses. That doesn't break it down in terms of time, but it can give you a nice rough percentage if you have to litigate this in front of a judge. It's still pretty powerful to say this transcript is 50 pages long and approximately 20 pages of them are taken up with counsel speaking and none of these objections are actually valid. So that's quick and dirty. It doesn't give you the actual time percentages, but it is one way to visually depict it. And boy, does it make a nice attachment to that motion to have a deposition transcript where you've highlighted in yellow or in red or some other bold, obnoxious color, all of the places in the transcript where opposing counsel has been wasting time and talking unnecessarily. The way that I've handled it with court reporters, and of course, you, you reach out to your court reporter, you see what tools they have and how they can handle this best. They may have some suggestions themselves. But what I have asked the court reporter to do is simply to note the time on the record, and then I do the math if I need to create some issue. So I asked the court reporter to note not only when we go on the record at the beginning and the end of the deposition and also on breaks, but every time there is a break in the witnesses giving answers because there's an objection battle back and forth, I asked the court reporter to just note that time on the record too. So the court reporter doesn't say anything out loud during the deposition, but when I get the transcript back, there is a notation of time. And most court reporters are keeping a record at the same time as they're taking stenographic notes and many of the programs that they use allow them to do that allow them to add timestamps in that way that's how I've handled it I think that's easy and not obstructionist to the deposition doesn't call out to opposing counsel that you're doing it doesn't add a lot of extra work to the court reporter their recording device already can give them those timestamps they just have to go back in and put them in the transcript and so that's how I've handled it Another way that you can do it very simply is by doing a video deposition and then afterwards you yourself can stop and start the video and note the amount of time that is spent and keep that recording yourself. So there's a variety of different ways of doing it. Um, those are the ones that I suggest. You got a quick and dirty way of doing it and then you can have it just noted as timestamps in the transcript or if you get a video you can create those timestamps yourself after the fact or you can ask the videographer to include those timestamps. So then the next question follows up on your second point, which is involving the court reporter. And this viewer wanted to know, when you ask a court reporter to track the amount of time spent on objections, exactly how and when do you do that? Is it when you're ordering the court reporter? Is it when the court reporter arrives at the deposition? Is it once the deposition is underway? And then when does the court reporter actually provide that information? It sounds like they do that at the tail end, um, rather than in real time or after the fact. But if you could clarify all of those um, questions, your answers, that would be fantastic. I think in some ways this depends on your relationship with the court reporter. If you are ordering from a court reporter service where you're placing the order now for a deposition a month from now and you have no idea what human being is going to show up to transcribe the actual deposition, it probably doesn't make sense to talk it out when you're placing the order, but rather to talk with the court reporter when the court reporter arrives. Um, if you have the same court reporter that you use over and over again, you have a rapport with this person, then it might make sense to have a talk about it when you actually place the order. 
maybe even to put it in writing when you're placing the order. But I like to have a discussion with the court reporter in advance of the day of the deposition. So if I know that I have a deposition and I'm going to have a problem with opposing counsel and I want to track the record, I'll reach out to the court reporting service the day before the deposition. I'll ask who's assigned and I'll get contact information for that actual court reporter, give that person a call and talk through it with that court reporter. The court reporter may have some great ideas for how to handle this that I haven't done before. It's nice for them to know when they're coming into an assignment what it's going to look like. A little warning for them that there might be a lot of objections, that this is going to be perhaps a little bit of a battle, that it might take longer than another deposition on the same subject in this type of case. So I like to have that discussion with the court reporter in advance. Um, I don't generally have the discussion in front of opposing counsel because in my view, this is like every else having to do with the preparation of the transcript. If I'm the one paying for the transcript and I'm ordering it, I get to make the decisions. I get to say what the format's going to look like, whether I want it video recorded as well as transcribed, the format in which I'm going to receive that transcript in terms of file types. I'm making all of those choices and I think if I want timestamps on the transcript, that's my choice too. Um, If you feel like you know, this is something that's going to cause a problem with opposing counsel. You can always put it in the deposition notice. I don't think it's required. I don't routinely do that myself. But if you anticipate an issue, you can always do that. Um, Or you could have the discussion with the court reporter immediately before the deposition begins. But I like to do this in advance. I don't want to spring something on a court reporter who already has a lot to do. I want to get the court reporter's buy-in and ideas on how to do this well. And at least for me personally, I don't really want or need this information during the deposition. I'm not going to do anything with it during the deposition. It's just a bit of a distraction. But what I want is for it to be in the transcript. So if I have to show how the conduct was abusive, I can do that by attaching the transcript. And the transcript is going to have everything I need to put in front of the judge. On-the-record discussions with opposing counsel when the conduct happened, the actual questions that are being asked, the objections on the record that are being made, any answers that the witness is giving, any narrative comments that the attorney is making, and the timestamps. I want all of that on the transcript because in some ways what I'm asking the judge to do is almost act in the role of an appellate attorney, appellate judge ruling on a cold record. And so I want everything in that record. It's not that useful to me in real time. I'm very unlikely to say to opposing counsel, hey, you've already spent 20 minutes at making objections, but I want that in the record in case I have to litigate something using that record of the deposition transcript. This last question on obnoxious humans turns the camera lens inward toward oneself. And the viewer wanted to know, how do you toe the line between zealous advocacy and not becoming obstreperous or obstructive counsel yourself? Your thoughts? The first thing I would say is you get more flies with honey than vinegar. You're going to get better answers at a deposition if you're not acting like a jerk. You're just going to open the witness up. The deponent's going to be more willing to talk, more willing to give answers, more trusting, more willing to go with you if there's a bit of an assumption in your question, more willing to give you an estimate, right? Everything that you are looking for is to get this deponent to open up and talk. And even if you are directing your ire to opposing counsel and not to the deponent, the deponent sees it and the deponent feels it and that energy is real in the room. And so the less strident you are yourself, the more this feels like a conversation, the more you're going to get the witness to open up. And that's one of the goals in a lot of depositions is to get the deponent to feel comfortable and to give you as much information as you can possibly get. So that's the first thought in my head is that I may not be doing the client a service by being overly strident. That might feel like zealous advocacy, but it might not actually serve the best ends of gathering information that will be useful for this client. My second suggestion is think about whether or not you would announce at a public CLE that anybody could attend 
to engage in this conduct. If you wouldn't want it floating out there in the world that you suggest behaving in a certain way, then don't behave that way. If you wouldn't do this in front of a judge or in front of a jury, there's probably a good reason why, because it's really over the line or close enough to the line to not be a good idea. So if you wouldn't do this in public, if you wouldn't want this conduct attached to your name for everybody to see, don't do it behind closed doors either. Practice good advocacy in private in the deposition setting when there's no judge and no jury so that it's second nature when you're in front of the jury in a jury trial. Thank you. Uh, The next category of questions that we got relates to speaking objections. And the first question is whether you have any tips or important takeaways for the new lawyer who is defending a deposition as it relates to speaking objections. That's a great question. And during the presentation that we made that was live, I could see questions coming in. There's a lot of confusion, I think, not only with new attorneys, but even with experienced attorneys about when something crosses over the line to being a speaking objection. How much is enough to preserve the record without being too much? And it's a good question because it's not always entirely clear. The first thing I will say is that the rules of evidence Certainly the federal rules and most state rules of evidence as well have a nice table of contents. And if what you are hearing the attorney say is the word objection and one of the titles in the table of contents, I think a lot of judges are going to say that's not a speaking objection. That's not too much. So let me give you an example based on the federal rules of evidence. We've got the 800 series. That's all entitled hearsay. If during a deposition an attorney says objection hearsay, I think that's not a speaking objection. A lot of judges are going to say that's not a speaking objection. That's not going too far. That's lodging an objection and stating the basis and that's okay. What your ear wants to be listening for as a new lawyer is when the attorney starts saying facts that relate to this case because that's not in the rules of evidence. That's more than just preserving the basis. So if an attorney says objection hearsay, the deponent doesn't know who wrote this letter. Ah, what the deponent does and doesn't know and the existence of a letter, these are all facts specific to this case. Nowhere in the federal rules of evidence is it talking about the letter that the deponent is being shown that's been marked as Exhibit 7. That's facts relating to this case. That's a speaking objection. That's over the line. So listen for words that have to do with not just the evidentiary basis for why the attorney thinks there's a problem with the question, but anything more than that. And specifically when you're hearing discrete facts about this case, something substantive about this case, that's definitely a speaking objection because that's far beyond the confines of the rules that apply. So we also got a viewer comment that I would like to get your comment back on, and it goes like this. Sometimes opposing counsel archly chastises me for stating the ground for the objection, such as objection, vague. Counsel will then claim that this is a speaking objection. I read the rules as requiring a short specification of the grounds precisely, because not stating the grounds is interrupting without cause, and saying objection to the form is as meaningless as the objection, objection, typically seen on TV. What is your comment to that? I agree with this person. I think if you look in the federal rules at Federal Rule of Evidence 103 and all of the state rules that I'm aware of have a similar rule, in order to preserve a claim of error, the party who's making the objection has to make it on the record, has to make it timely, and has to state the specific ground unless it's apparent from the context. So I agree with this individual that if all you do is say objection or all you do is interrupt, that you haven't fully preserved the error. And so because what you are doing at a deposition is preserving error in case this testimony is going to be offered later, I would point opposing counsel to rule of evidence 103 or the equivalent state rule of evidence, as well as to your rule of civil procedure that says that depositions are to proceed as though as if at trial. And I would use that as the basis to argue that you can only preserve the error in the question 
if you say the word objection, but also give a basis. And then I would try to keep my basis limited to the grounds that are actually stated in the rules without adding additional facts or editorializing. But I think sometimes you just have to stand up for what you know is right. I think if you make a good argument here on the record, then you have a good basis if opposing counsel for some reason wants to put this before the judge. I think you have adequately explained why you are making the objections the way you are and I think that you are on good footing in terms of the rules of evidence. This might be a place where you take a little bit of time to research before the deposition, see if there's any cases in your jurisdiction addressing this point, and have those cases at the ready in your trial binder. Trial binder is something that we talked about uh, during the webcast and that I think we're going to talk about a little bit more in some of the questions today and I'll have some additional thoughts for you on what else you might want to put in that binder but I don't walk into a deposition any less prepared than I walk into trial when it comes to making objections and defending them based on evidence because I recognize that at a deposition I may have to do that the same way that I might have to do it at trial. So now we're going to move into continuing objections. And because of the nature of the viewer's question, I think it might be helpful if you could first define what a continuing objection is. Sure. A continuing objection can be helpful when you're at an impasse with opposing counsel about whether an entire topic is or is not off limits, but it's not the kind of topic like privilege where you're going to direct the deponent not to answer. That being said, there is a fundamental disagreement about whether or not it's appropriate to question on this topic. So you're left with two choices. Either you're going to question on this topic and after every single question, you are going to get the relevance objection over and over and over again. Or you might agree to what's known as a continuing objection, meaning that you allow opposing counsel to lodge the objection the first time the topic is broached fully and completely and to state the basis, and you agree that that objection need not be made after every question, but as long as you continue to question on this same topic, that objection is being made to every question on that topic. It can be really useful to do it that way because it becomes much, much less obstreperous and it doesn't interrupt the flow of the questioning and answering the same way, but it still allows opposing counsel the opportunity to object to the entire line of questioning. I think it's a good suggestion where you have a good rapport with opposing counsel and it's clear that what opposing counsel is trying to do is, is really properly preserve the record and you have a true difference of opinion as to whether or not this topic is appropriate or not. So this is not about brandishing swords and trying to show who's the biggest and loudest talking attorney in the room. It's not about bluster, but there's a genuine disagreement as to whether or not this topic should or should not be questioned about and nobody wants to interrupt the deposition. Position. Nobody wants to force the deponent to come back. Everybody wants to be efficient, but does want to preserve the ability to keep this line of questioning out if it turns out that it was inappropriate. So that would be how I would define and give an example of what a continuing objection would be. So how would you word something then on the record? So let's say that you begin to broach a particular topic. You show the witness an exhibit the exhibit is a memorandum and you start questioning the deponent on that memorandum and opposing counsel objects based on lack of personal knowledge. And you realize that opposing counsel is going to have a problem with any question you ask the deponent about that memo because somebody else wrote that memo. This would be a great place to turn to opposing counsel and say, what is the nature of your objection? Let opposing counsel say clearly on the record what the nature of the objection is. There's a lack of personal knowledge. Any questions about this memorandum are going to be inappropriate. This memorandum was drafted by somebody other than the deponent. And then say to opposing counsel, rather than interrupt the entire line of questioning, can I allow you to have a continuing objection to any questioning on this memorandum? And if opposing counsel says yes, then there's no need for continued objections. And if opposing counsel wants to, at some point, move to exclude that entire line of questions, they have an objection and you are not going to try to reject that motion or refute that motion on the basis that no objection was made. 
Not to plug Nita's funnel method, but I'll always plug Nita's funnel method. If you use the funnel method well and you have good head notes at the beginning of every line of questioning and you close the door effectively using that same head note at the bottom of every funnel, at the bottom of every line of questioning, it will be very clear where the continuing objection applies. It applies to everything within that funnel. And so that's another great reason, as if you needed another reason, that's another great reason to use Nita's funnel method. It makes continuing objections much easier to handle and frankly, just much more effective for both sides. Well, I have no objection to you uh, plugging the Nita funnel method. So thank you very much for that. I want to move on to the fourth and final set of questions, which are kind of the how-tos, where people responded to the presentation by asking in the chat, okay, well, that sounds great, but how do you actually do that? Like, as a practical matter, how do you do that? What do you say? What do you do? When do you do it? And so on. And so these last few questions of how-tos are kind of a mixed bag of topics. And the first one is about written discovery requests. In what order should written discovery requests be propounded? There's different schools of thought on this, and it's going to depend a little bit on the subject matter of your litigation. As a general matter, I like to cast a wide net first, get as much information as I possibly can before I move on to depositions which means some of the first discovery tools that I'm going to use are requests for production of documents. Those are great under the federal rules because they're not limited in number, and you can ask about anything that is in the care and custody and control of the opposing party as long as it's in, within the scope of Rule 26 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which is a pretty broad scope of documents. So I'd love to do that first, get as much as you possibly can, digest it and learn what you can from those documents, and then propound interrogatories. Those are limited in number, so I try to be a little bit choosier, and I understand that they're going to be mediated and filtered with the responses written by an attorney, not right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. But they're still really useful, and they could be good ways to collapse down on some of the information that I've gotten from document requests. Then I start thinking about taking depositions, and again, to the extent that I can, when I'm ordering what depositions I take and when, I'm also going to go broad to narrow. I'm going to try to start with the people who know the most about the facts underlying the case, and then only later in the sequence try to take those people who have very small snapshots of information. I also might adjust the order of the depositions a little bit based on who I think is likely to be most cooperative to least cooperative because, again, I'm trying to cast a wide net. I'm trying to get as much information as I can, and I know that I have limited time in a deposition and that it's live and I have to be thinking on my feet. So I want to walk in there as prepared as possible with as much information as possible. Third-party discovery, I'm going to try to do as much of that as I possibly can before the deposition. I want to walk in as educated as I possibly can be. And then after the deposition, I'll follow up with any additional requests that I think are important. And a really underutilized tool that I suggest everybody to think about using when appropriate are requests for admission. Requests for admission can really streamline your trial process. They can make a summary judgment or other dispositive motion that much easier. Requests for admission do not have to be on salacious topics that opposing counsel and the opposing party are going to fight about. They can be on very basic things like the evidentiary foundation for a document, the chain of custody for a particular piece of evidence, for uncontested elements of a case that everybody kind of agrees are met. They can be taken off the table in a really straightforward and easy way. Things that could be the subject of judicial notice are appropriate to ask about in requests for admission. Think about every way that you can really, really narrow the case down, starting broad, gathering as much information as you need, doing legal research to figure out what really matters, getting the answers you need in discovery, using requests for admission to narrow things down, and now you're in a really good position going into trial to just have a focused trial on what actually matters, the places where there's true clash and disagreement between your client and the opposing client. This next inquiry is about stipulations. 
This viewer wanted to know, are there circumstances in which one should not stipulate to the so-called usual stipulations? I actually never agree to the usual stipulations. I feel like this is an attorney hazing ritual that if you are the youngest and least experienced attorney in the room, somebody says to you at some point in your career, the usual stipulations, and you feel like you can't ask what that means. And so you say yes, because everybody else is saying yes. And then the next thing you know, nobody's ever defined it in your entire career. And you're the one saying the usual stipulations. And nobody in the room has any idea what that actually means. I don't think that it's helpful to agree to the usual stipulations. The same way I don't think it's helpful to walk into a corner deli and ask for the usual sandwich. You might not like what you get, and who knows what's usual. If you're in the federal court system, I think it's helpful to take the deposition pursuant to the federal rules of evidence and the federal rules of civil procedure. They're a very clear set of rules. They tell you what's admissible and what's not admissible. And as to depositions, all objections other than form are preserved for trial. So you don't have to make them at the deposition. The only objections you have to make at a deposition are those to form. I think that's what most people mean when they say the usual stipulations, but I don't know. I'm not in their head and I want the record to be clear. So instead of agreeing to the usual stipulations, I'll repeat back what stipulations I agree to and get opposing counsel to say that opposing counsel agrees to those stipulations as well. I think that's much neater and much better. If you anticipate an unusual set of stipulations, if you're not going to do it in a way that complies with the applicable rules, I think it's important to have a back and forth and a discussion about that in advance. And you might even want to reduce it to a written set of stipulations or agreement that you can read onto the record that's very clear. And there are sometimes some depositions that you have to take in sort of unusual circumstances. I had a case where I had a deponent who had migraines. She could only take about 30 minutes of being on Zoom before she had to log off. So we had sort of a different set than usual stipulations about what the deponent could and couldn't do in between sessions of the deposition. And I think that's you know, that happens from time to time. And if you anticipate this deposition being unusual, it's worth hashing it out in advance, not the day you arrive for the deposition and think you're going to work it out then. Reach out to opposing counsel, have some back and forth, decide what you're going to do, reduce it to writing, and then you could read that into the record at the beginning of the deposition and that way it's clear. Um, I'm very unlikely to agree to anything usual unless I know what it means the same way you wouldn't sign a contract without reading it. Good point. So you mentioned your trial binder a couple of minutes ago, and I wanted to circle back and bring that topic up to listeners who may not have tuned into the webcast. You described um, all the different materials that you include in your own personal trial binder. And I think that the, the advice is just so easy to do and so valuable that it bears repeating. So could you tell us what those items are that you have in your trial binder? Sure. So I have a trial binder that I take with me to trial and a deposition binder that I take with me to depositions. And they have a lot of the same things in them. And they are separate and apart from anything substantive that I've prepared for this particular case. So I'm not talking now about my deposition outline, the questions that I want to ask this deponent or the exhibits that I want to show that deponent. Of course, I have that too. But that changes for every case and every deponent. My trial binder and my deposition binder are sort of my go-to book of resources for those two phases of litigation and they are going to have in them everything that I need for that phase in any case. So let me focus in on the deposition binder since we're talking about depositions. The first thing that I'm going to have in my deposition binder is the phone number of anybody who I might need to contact having to do with depositions, the court reporting service, my support staff back at the office if I might need to contact them, the videographer's contact information, the contact information from the judge who's presiding over this case, but also all of the other judges in this district or in this court, as well as a schedule of who's the judge on duty or in the case of courts that have discovery court, the schedule for who is handling discovery court in which day and which time. 
That way, if I come to loggerheads with opposing counsel during the deposition, I'm immediately ready to get the judge on the phone. That's not just an empty threat. I'm prepared and ready to do it. And you'd be amazed how differently opposing counsel behave and how quickly people back down when you pull out the phone number and get out your cell phone as as compared to just threatening to call the judge. When you call the judge, you want to make sure that the judge knows that you're on the record. If you are indeed on the record, you want to know the judge's policies and procedures in advance so that you're not doing anything that the judge finds inappropriate. And so the second thing on my trial binder is all of the judge's policies and procedures with the section on discovery and depositions highlighted and tabbed so that I can easily, before making that phone call, flip to that judge's policies and procedures and see This judge always wants us to call on the record if we have a discovery dispute. This other judge does not allow calls during a deposition, wants it to be entirely motion practice after the fact. So that's the second thing I have in my deposition binder. And sometimes I have to swap this out. If I'm in state court today rather than federal court, it's a slightly different binder with slightly different entries. But these are the general things that I keep in my deposition binder. Then I have a series of key rulings on the law in the applicable jurisdiction. I have a copy of the applicable rules of civil procedure and a copy of the rules of evidence. And I have in advance gone and pulled any cases that have been decided in this jurisdiction on common issues that come up during depositions. You'd be surprised there really aren't that many published decisions on deposition issues. So it's worth, if there's only a dozen in your jurisdiction, it's worth having them at your fingertips. So you know what they are, you know which judges decided them, and you can cite them on the record and hand a copy to opposing counsel if you need to. So what am I talking about when I say rulings on depositions? You need to do a little bit of legwork and a little bit of research in advance to find out, has there been a decision in your jurisdiction on whether or not a deponent is allowed to talk to their counsel during breaks in the deposition, or is it handled as though they were on the witness stand at trial? Different jurisdictions differ. It's helpful to have the case that tells you the answer to that question if it exists. If you're taking a corporate designee deposition under Federal Rule of Evidence 30B6 or a similar state rule, what's the rule on whether or not you can ask questions outside the scope of the deposition notice? There's a circuit split in the United States on that. Different circuits hold different ways. There's also differences amongst the states. You want to know what the answer to that question is. What's a speaking objection? There might be a decision in your jurisdiction on the answer to that question. Um, What is the contours of particular rules of evidence and how might they apply? What is and is not appropriate conduct for a witness? What's privilege? What's defined as privilege in your particular jurisdiction? Does your jurisdiction recognize only the ones recognized under federal law or are there some state-specific privileges that are recognized? It's not a tremendous amount of research and you can get a huge leg up on this by going onto Lexis or Westlaw and going to the practice guides that are there for deposition practice and looking at the citations and the cases that are provided in those practice guides and doing a little bit of research on each of those topics in your jurisdiction. And so I have a section with all of those cases along with the rules tabbed and highlighted so I can easily get to them. And so if there is an issue during the deposition, I am ready to go. I can make the argument on the record, citing the applicable rule, citing the applicable case law. I can hand the case law to opposing counsel. I can cite it, including citation on the record. And if we still can't come to a resolution, I'm ready to call the judge and I know whether that is or is not appropriate and how the judge wants me to handle it. Again, my focus here is if I have to walk out of this deposition and engage in motion practice, I want the record to be complete. I want to have to do almost nothing once I've walked out of the room. And my deposition binder makes me prepared to do that. Side benefit of the deposition binder, boy, (laughs) oh boy, do people who are not in the right back down fast when you pull out the receipts. 
and they don't have anything. So if you have a case to cite or a rule to cite, it's amazing how quickly somebody who's just blustering for the sake of bluster will back down when they don't have anything to counter on. And it makes depositions go much smoothly, much more smoothly. Often I don't actually even have to involve the judge or engage in motion practice, just being prepared is enough. That's amazing. So it sounds like you've had situations where you've pulled out your deposition binder and it all came in pretty handy. People get pretty quiet when you have the controlling case in your jurisdiction in your hand and they have nothing. Have you ever encountered opposing counsel during depositions who impressed you because they were just as prepared for it as you were with a similar type of binder? Um, I can't think of anybody who had that exact same binder, but I will definitely say that when all counsel are prepared, things go so much more smoothly. And even if there is some disagreement, even if it's a large substantive disagreement, it's so much easier to work around it. And so if you are in a jurisdiction where everybody is constantly at odds with each other, and I saw some comments during our webcast from people saying, oh, I handle asbestos litigation in this state. Nobody gets along with anybody or nobody will cooperate or nobody follows the rules. I will say that there is a saying that I'm quite fond of that a rising tide rises all ships. If you come very prepared and you do the right thing, it will rub off on a few people, not everyone but it will rub off on someone young and impressionable. And the next thing you know, they come really prepared doing the next thing. And before long, all those grumpy people who were the problem are aging out and leaving, and you're left with a pool of people who are a lot more reasonable. I can't promise that everyone is going to wake up and become reasonable and be prepared and act appropriately. Of course not. That's never going to happen. But the more prepared you are, the more judges are going to appreciate it, You're going to get a few positive rulings here and there. You're going to influence a few other people. And the only way that you can make big change is by chipping away on the margins. So I'm very sympathetic to people who say this is all well and good, but it's chaos where I practice. I hear you. I believe you. I think that's valid. I'm not discounting it. But your choices are to throw up your hands and say nothing can be done or to try to be a positive change. And I think it's worth trying to be a positive change, even if it only makes the tiniest incremental difference. It is still an improvement. And take advantage when you have a really good judge. When you're in a jurisdiction where people behave pretty inappropriately, but you luck into having a good judge, maybe that's the case where it's worth litigating one of these issues. I mean, maybe it's worth trying to get a reported decision on this or trying to get opposing counsel called out on the carpet for the way they behave. You might not always win, but try to take those wins where they're available. Well, what a way to close out this interview. That was a really fantastic answer. Great advice. And I mean, it just fits in with the rest of the interview. You just gave so much value-added content. So thank you so much for coming and joining me on the on the podcast. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Uh, I loved having, for the first time, the webcast and the podcast kind of talking to each other. And so if any of you listening missed out on the webcast when it first aired, please be sure to check the show notes because the link is in uh, in there and you can catch it on demand. So now we we'll end up with our final questions, the sign-offs, which are always the fun ones. And my first one, Veronica, is what is one thing about being an effective litigator and trial lawyer that you now know that you wish you would have known when you were first starting your career? There's so many pieces of advice, but I'm going to stick with one having to do depositions and keeping it on topic here. When you walk out of a deposition, you have a new piece of work product. It is virtually the only part of discovery that you as the attorney on the opposing side asking questions get to control. So keep that in mind. Think about what you need for your motion for summary judgment or other dispositive motion. Think about what kind of questions you might want to ask in cross-examination at trial and stick your neck out and get those admissions, get those statements that you need. Don't just look at this as learning information and gathering, but as learning information and gathering and getting to where you need to go. Great. What TV show or movie have you been enjoying lately? 
I am a big movie buff. I had a hard time choosing. I am going to pick one that I saw recently that I thought was great, which is a film called American Fiction that is directed by Cord Jefferson. And I particularly like it because it is a meta movie about making movies based on a meta book about writing books. And it is beautifully done with terrific acting, very, very funny and entertaining and something for everyone. So I'm going to give a big pitch to American Fiction. It's out in theaters right now. January 2024. There you go. Veronica Finkelstein, one of the most fluid, off-the-cuff public speakers I've ever listened to. I think she is just so good and such an inspiration to me for improving my own public speaking skills. When we were recording this episode a few weeks ago, it struck me how fluidly she spoke without any of those non-fluencies like, um, and you know, which... Don't add anything to the conversation. And then afterwards, when I listened to the audio draft, I literally kept track of the number of times Veronica said the word um during her interview. And it was four over the course of an hour. She's just fantastic. And if you would like to get a little of her magic for yourself, Veronica is teaching in Denver at our trial skills course in late April. It's a great opportunity to learn from one of the best. So check out the show notes for the link if that interests you. And as always, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard from Veronica Finkelstein, please leave us some stars, five is a good number, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We love creating these episodes for you. Getting to talk to some of the best and brightest litigators in the country so that we can share their insights with you, it's great fun. And getting stars and reviews lets us know that you think we're on the right track. We will be back next month with a closer look at Voidir. Until then, we wish you the very best of luck in your depositions, motions, and trials. Happy lawyering! May the Record Reflect is a NITA Studio 71 production. NITA, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.